It's good be good to be here with you again, and uh, bring you greetings from India. I got back uh, Friday afternoon about five o'clock, just in time to come here, and so I have a super jet lag, and uh, I've been up since two. So if anybody's prone to fall asleep in the sermon, it, it'll be me. Um, so you watch for that. So uh, Les said we're, uh, the, the, the numbers in India, well, there's 1.3 billion people. So I just came from two weeks of training in evangelism and church planting. So we're trying to multiply the church and train the church planters to uh, develop leaders in such a way that they would plant five churches in five years. So imagine if the PCA uh, could do the same kind of thing, we would be like rabbits, we'd be multiplying all over the place. I think the last time I was here was in July, and I think I got you to write down five names that you're supposed to be praying for for evangelism so that you can multiply yourself. Are you still praying for those folks? You're giving me a, some of you are nodding your heads, and some of you are looking like I'm from outer space. So I asked you to write down five names. And so we trained them to do the same thing, that they would train their congregations to do the same kind of thing. And so uh, continue praying for your five names, if you would, and uh, see if uh, some evangelism can be done right here. I think you can do it. So we're in Philippians 1 this morning. That's our text. And uh, we're going to start in 19. Actually, it's the last, it's one of those places where the, the verses are weird. So it starts right at the end of 18. So hear the word of God. Philippians 1.19. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which shall I choose? Which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that's far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus. Because of my coming to you again. Thus sends a reading of God's word. May he add his blessing to it. So I don't know if I told you this last time I was here. But my wife Sherry. She was here with me this morning. She's sick so she's not here. But <coughs> my wife Sherry is a home hospice nurse. So you might say that death is her ministry. She comforts and helps the dying, but, he, and the, but more so even the grieving. So uh, we talk about death at our house a lot because Sherry's dealing with that all the time. So a couple of years ago, I was in India, and, and I think it was July, and, and uh, she'd lost a patient. And so she wanted to talk about it while we were a FaceTiming, and it was an 85-year-old woman. The, the interesting part of the story was that she had been caring for the 85-year-old husband. And she had had him as a patient for about four or five months. And his wife was the, his caregiver. And then all of a sudden, she got sick. We talked on the phone, and she says, I lo lost this patient today. And uh, 
So she had been sleeping on the couch. He was sleeping in the bed, and, and she got sick really fast, was admitted to hospice, and, and dead just in a few days. It was very unexpected. And, and as you can imagine, the husband was overwhelmed and distraught, and uh, he had COPD, so he, he couldn't breathe. And so he had to be put to bed and, and given treatment, and, and he kept saying, I can't see her. I can't see her. And uh, 65 years of marriage. They were both 85. They've been married since they were 20. And uh, all he wanted was to sit and hold her hand for a little while because he lost her. And uh, as Sherry told me the story over fo FaceTime, I was completely choked up. It chokes me up every time I tell this story. And, and, and I wept for that man. De death is hell. And uh, I don't know how Sherry does it. it uh, she does it, I, I, I imagine, because it's a gift. And, and the reason she's able to do it is because she does it to exalt Christ in life and in death. And that's what Paul's talking about in our passage this morning. Paul is telling us about the uncertainty of his future. Now, none of us know exactly what tomorrow will bring. But I'm pretty sure that when I get up tomorrow, it'll be around 3 because I'll still have jet lag. And then I'll go into my home office and uh, I'll start doing some work and, and I'll be preparing for my next trip to India in November and, and doing the things I do. And, and you'll be doing the same kind of things too. Um, that's probably what you'll do tomorrow. But the Apostle Paul is in chains. And his life is on the line, and his future was uncertain. And his concern is not about his his concern about his future is not about whether he's going to live and die. But did you notice that his concern is whether Christ would be exalted? And so that's our concern this morning: is that we look at this text. And so I have three things that I want to share with you from this passage. Three things about the gospel that I want to share. And the first is. Christ is exalted in deliverance. Now, the apostle is in chains, and every day he faces death. Not, not the wrestling match of captivity and humiliation and degra degradation, so cer certainly he has that. But every day, Paul faces death because he's already been given the death penalty. The only reason he's still alive is because he's under judicial appeal. And yet he says, I know that what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. Now, does he say that because he, 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 he's had some special word from the Lord that he knows he's going to be delivered from chains? Has he had a vision that shows him preaching somewhere without the death penalty? And well, the answer is no. He hasn't had that happen to him. He's not talking about deliverance from his chains or from the death penalty He's talking about deliverance from fear and disappointment, which is something we all face, fear and disappointment. Look again at verse 20. He says, it's my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. You know, one of the reasons I gather prayer supporters for ELI and, and Mike does the same kind of thing is because there's some fear in doing ministry. You never think of Paul as being afraid, but this passage reveals that he was afraid. 
not of death. He's afraid of shame. He doesn't want to bring shame to, to the name of Jesus. And so Paul says here that he has an eager expectation and a hope of deliverance, that he will not be disappointed, that he will not be put to shame, that he will have sufficient courage to exalt Christ whether he lives or dies. And what he means, beloved, is that he is certain that the gospel will not let him down. Now, people are ashamed of different things. Some, some people are ashamed to tell others where they go to church. That they're afraid their friends might be disappointed with their church and so they have some secret shame. That their church will somehow let them down or let their friends down so they don't even invite people to church. Some people are ashamed of their jobs. They don't want to tell you what they do for a living because they're not proud. Some people are afraid of their homes. They won't have you over because their home's a wreck and a mess and no maintenance has been done. And, and they're ashamed. And, and some people are ashamed of their family. They're not going to tell you about their relatives or, or their kids or what's going on. They keep secrets because of shame. So some people are ashamed of where they went to school. Now, if you went to Georgia instead of Georgia Tech, I fully understand that, <laughs> that you would be ashamed. But some people really are ashamed of where they went to school, whether it's high school or college, and, and they're not going to tell you. So some people are ashamed of their children. Maybe one of your children is astray and doing things they ought not to do, and you don't even tell people because... You're ashamed of how that makes you look as a parent. You're thinking that your children reflect poorly on you and you don't want people to think poorly so you don't share. So see, their kids have lit them down. And Paul says in Romans 1, he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. In other words, he will not be detoured, deterred from his task of preaching the, the, the crucified and risen Christ because the gospel, the good news of salvation and righteousness in Christ Jesus will not let him down. It's the answer to life and, and the power of God to save sinners from judgment and degradation and dishonor and slavery to self. The gospel will not let anyone down who puts their hope and trust in a mighty deliverer and savior named Jesus. And beloved, that gospel is not limited in its power to simply save you from hell. The gospel has so much power that it sets us free from the effects of sin, from the slavery of sin, from the shame of fallenness, and, and from a joyless existence. The gospel gives us a life of purpose that exalts Christ and gives other people joy. And so the deliverance that Paul needs is not for his trial to go away. It's not for his chains to diminish. But it's to have enough courage to face his life or death situation so that Christ is exalted in his life or in his death. And that's what Paul is concerned about. He wants Christ to be exalted. And, and I, I think that's amazing. He, he's a prisoner for the Lord. And his key thought is that Christ would be exalted. And, and so Paul says in this passage that his eager expectation and his hope of deliverance is the result of two things. 
the prayers of the saints, and the grace of the Holy Spirit. Did you catch that? You, you, you can't read Paul's letters to any of the churches in the New Testament without coming away with a tremendous sense of Paul's love and burden for the church of Jesus Christ. He loves Christ's church. And yet the truth is, is that inside the church, there's trouble. There are the, Paul mentions troublemakers back in verse 15. We didn't read it, but they're there. And they, they haunt him, and they're causing him pain and trouble. Inside the church are the divisive leaders that confuse and confound the flock. Inside the church are false teachers who teach that our good works merit Merit forgiveness. One of the false gospels we see all over the place in India is the prosperity gospel. We see it here as well. Twisting the words of scripture to somehow make you rich in this world's goods if you follow Jesus. The, the, the best gift of the gospel is the Lord Jesus himself. That's, that's what he's offering. If God loves you, really loves you, what he would give you is his best gift, which is himself. Not riches. That, those, are not, those are small things. All the, of that causes Paul great grief that there's trouble in the church. And the prophet Hosea, if you read that book, you'll find out that the church sometimes acts like a harlot. That's what he says. And you know, she does act like a harlot sometimes. I, I've experienced it firsthand. You know, I, I have a little saying that says, ruling elders live here. You don't get it, right? That means if there's problems between the teaching elder and the ruling elder, one of them moves. Ruling elders live here. Teaching elders move. But you know what Christ's answer is for, for the, those who've been hurt and bruised by the church? And I know that's maybe all of you. I know it's some of you. You know what his answer is? God's answer is, you ready? It's the church. That's his answer. That we are the bride of Christ, beloved. Our destiny in the kingdom of God lies together, not separate. You see, the dragon, the evil one, set, try, tries to cut us off from the flock and get us outside where discouragement and cynicism reigns. But you see, together, we, we are more powerful than the world. We're, we are so important to God as his bride that he's given us, given our families the gift of marriage to model and reveal the depths of his love and redemption so that we'll never forget that we are the bride of Christ. And, and the church of Jesus Christ is so glorious that the picture in Revelation 21 is of a golden cube that is jewel-encrusted. And it's so big, it's unfathomable. And, and the Philippians have from day one been partners in prayer with Paul for the advancement of the gospel. And your success for the future, beloved, is no less tied to your partnership and prayer with each other and for your committee. Because of their prayers, the Philippians, and, and the mighty working of the Holy Spirit, Paul is certain that the gospel will not let him down. And I know it's the same thing for you and for me. Christ will be exalted in Paul's deliverance from fear. And that courage allows him to face life or death without fear of shame. 
because Christ will be exalted in deliverance. And then the second thing I wanted to show you this morning is that Christ will be exalted in death. Look at verse 21. He says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. It's one of the most famous verses in all of Scripture. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. I remember when I was in the name-it-and-claim-it wing of the church 35 years ago, I was raised in the church, and then I got converted radically in college into the Word of Faith movement, That now the most famous preacher for that wing of the church is Joel Osteen in, in Houston and so we believed that we could name any promise of God and claim it would happen so when we read this passage here's what we thought it meant we would read this and conclude that Paul had authority over his own life and death and, and that he chose all these circumstances and that he could simply claim these things by faith and we thought that the average Christian does too and, and we all wanted that kind of power. I was in college, and you got your full of your own oats, and we wanted that power, and we were sure it's just a matter of enough faith and making the correct claims on God, and you'd get what you wanted, life or death. Well, beloved, the text doesn't teach that. And, and as far from what Paul is saying, it wasn't a matter of authority, but of courage. Because every day, Paul faced death in court. And every day he faced suffering for the gospel in chains, in loneliness, under critical scrutiny, and, and some in the church were even trying to hurt him and succeeding in hurting him. And his life was hard, and, and he oftentimes grew weary, and his death was ever hanging over him from judgment from Caesar. And so when he contemplated death and his future, his thoughts went through this pattern. You know, death would be gain because I would be with Jesus. All I have to do is stop my appeal to Caesar and I'll die. And that would bring me rest. It would sure be a better for me. But on the other hand, I'm called to gospel ministry. The Lord has put me here to exalt Christ in his church and the church still needs me. So what do I choose? That's how he was thinking. His choice was whether to quit his appeal and be executed or live for the church. And both looked very good. So, so he was torn. And so his concern, he shifted his concern from his choice to Christ. That's what the call of the gospel does. It shifts the concern about our circumstance to the exaltation of Christ. And, and Paul said to live is Christ and to die is gain. I don't know about you, but I've been a, to a bunch of funerals and I've preached quite a few. Uh, I was, I've rarely witnessed this philosophy of life by the dying or the grieving. Even in the church, we're pretty weak, aren't we? I was at a funeral this last spring with my wife somewhere in West Georgia, down country roads. I had to use 
maps to get me there. I could never find it again if I had to. We were in a little bitty country church, and one of the children of the dead, of the dying man, had written a poem about how heaven was a better place because he was there and that their hope was wrapped up in getting to see him again. Beloved, what makes heaven heaven is that Jesus is there, not anybody else, but that the Lord himself is there. He's the gift. He is the reason. He is the fount of all good things. And Paul knows that. And not only does he want Christ to be exalted, he knows that Christ will be exalted if he dies and goes and sees him. And he knows that Christ will be exalted if he stays in the church and exalts him so that other people get to see him. That is the key. So, so obviously the apostle knew something important, that to face life and death with the exaltation of Christ in mind, well, well it takes gospel courage. It, it takes the prayers of the saints, and it takes the grace of the Holy Spirit. You see, for the believer, to die is gain. It takes courage to believe that because you, you know this life well and the future feels less certain. But the gospel says to die is gain for the believer. Now, there's a lot to contemplate and understand when thinking about death and heaven. But I see two obvious reasons that death is gain for the Christian, for Paul. First of all, death is gain because we'll be with Jesus. That is the key, beloved. There's a funny little doctrinal error out there. It's called soul sleep. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. It raises its ugly head every now and then in the history of the church. Right now, it's in the Jehovah's Witness believe this. It's called soul sleep or mortalism. The idea teaches that when we die, we go to sleep and we don't wake again until the final resurrection. Well, by golly, nobody wants that, do they? We don't want the long nap. We want to be transferred right to heavenly places. And, but the reason people believe this is just a bad understanding of Scripture because there are several references in the New Testament uh, to people who are dying who are said to be asleep. And, and, but, but it's figurative language, and it's not meant to be taken literally. The reason for the language is that in the context of that Jewish culture, some of their leaders, namely the Sadducees, didn't believe in the resurrection. So it emphasizes that death is not the end. But imagine Paul says this in this passage, For me to live is Christ, but to take the long nap is gain. Yeah, that's what you should do is laugh out loud. It's so absurd. Here's another. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.8 that he would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. That's what the passage says. Now say it the other way. Well, I'd prefer to be away from the body and asleep for a long time. That's, uh, you should be laughing. It's silly. But I do want you to notice what Paul doesn't also say. He also doesn't say for me to live as Christ and to die is to be free from suffering. Though, though it's certainly true, it's not what drives us, beloved. And for unbelievers, dying is not freedom from suffering. When unbelievers die, their suffering increases. It's a reason to pray for those five people and to love them well. I've had to counsel with people over the years, with, pe to, with people who are ready to commit suicide, and every one of them was convinced as they sat in my office 
that if they took their life, their suffering would be over. And each time I asked them the same question, are you really sure? You're really sure that you'll be better off? You see, life and death both look like two evil choices when you are discouraged and deeply depressed and in the utter despair of life. And the reason people choose suicide is it looks like the better of two bad and evil choices. So we, we contemplate and meditate on which is less evil. But the gospel offers us a way different perspective. Paul didn't consider his such struggles as something to be freed from. Struggle is a part of fruitful labor. You cannot bear fruit for the master if you're not struggling. Because hard work is struggle, and, and, and his struggles were for the advancement of the kingdom because he was struggling for someone else. You see, it was love for somebody else that caused his struggling, suffering for others. Now, why would he give that up when he was being so fruitful? You can't bear fruit without struggle. Only if there was something better, you see. And so being with Christ is better. That's what Jesus told Martha in Luke chapter 10. I know you ladies know that story. Martha's concerned about whether her sister was serving the hors d'oeuvres in the proper fashion because Mary was content to sit at the feet of Jesus and listen with joy instead of handing out the little niblets. And Jesus said, Martha, Martha, you're worried and upset about so many things, but only one thing is needed. And Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. So that's the first reason, is that we'll be with Jesus. The second reason that dying is gain is because we get to be like Jesus. And that's incredible. Not only will we be with him, but we will be like him, perfect in holiness, resurrected and glorified, sinless and sin-free. He shares the glory and the fellowship of the eternal trinity with us. It's awesome and amazing. It's incredible to think about. Now, I don't know about you, but my life is so tainted with mixed motives that, that I can't imagine a life free from sin. Can you even imagine it? Where not even your thoughts are sinful and your secret judgments of other people are gone. It's beyond my comprehension. You know, the, the old Negro spirituals in the South were written in the midst of endless suffering, belittled, enslaved, indentured, the evil of Jim Crow. It's not far behind us. They could clearly see the other side of the Jordan and long for their home in heaven, so they sang about heaven a lot. And you know, country gospel is the same way. It has its roots among poor white Christians on the farm with the boll weevil and drought and sharecropping and hard times, many farmers wonder if they'll ever pay their bills or even eat. And, you know, in that circumstance, the streets of gold look mighty grand. And when our loved ones are old and dying, we often soothe our grief by talking about the end of suffering that will come with death. But, beloved, death is our enemy. It doesn't welcome anybody well. It hurts. It's part of the curse. That's why we fight it to the very end. 
with every breath and every strength that we have. So when I think of heaven, I first think of being with my Savior. I get to see Jesus. What an incredible moment that must be. I'm not sure how it looks like. Sherry and I were talking about this recently, driving to her folks. We were hearing a song on the radio called Well Done, Well Done, Well Done. Have you heard that? It's a great and glorious song about Jesus saying, Well Done. You know, the glorious thing about grace is you can be a complete screw-up in this life and get to heaven, and Jesus says, Well Done. Oh, I'm not sure that's an if thing. I'm pretty sure that's the way it works because I'm a complete screw-up. And he's going to say, well done. We were talking about what it's like. I was thinking that maybe Christians die every three seconds. So if you're going to get to spend personal time with Jesus, time must be over there because Christians here die every three seconds around the globe. But I was thinking you show up, and it's not like a movie where you don't know anybody. You're right there. And on either side, there's a path where you're walking, I guess, so you can go to orientation, right? And so, and so on either side, there's stands. And people are giving you a standing ovation as you walk into the palace. And your first job after orientation is to go back and do crowd work and you get to go join the stands and welcome the people that are behind you. I'm just guessing. I know it's so glorious you can't imagine. So the first thing I think of is I'll be with my Savior and then I immediately think of the glory of no more sin because I can't imagine what heaven's like itself. It's so amazing and beyond imagination. Randy Alcorn's written a book and that's a good book to encourage people, but I think his vision is too small, quite honestly. You can have the streets of gold. It's an image in the, in the gospel to set your mind on higher things. Maybe because I'm already prosperous, living in a prosperous country, and I'm not an old poor farmer. I already know what Paul knew, that, that material things don't really satisfy. A bigger house doesn't make you happier. That, that true riches are stored up in heaven through generosity for the gospel. That, that those riches are relational. They're in the body of Christ. That's why we don't leave when we're hurt. We fix them because our treasure is in those relationships. And if you have somebody to reconcile with this in church... In this church, you should do it before the next communion because those relationships are more valuable than gold. Fix it. Be humble. Go confess your own sins. They're already forgiven in heavenly places, beloved. What I long for, beloved, is to be free from sin, to have unbroken and unstained communion with the Father, to, for the down payment of the Holy Spirit that's upon my soul now to be filled up in victory in the cross. Jesus said, I always do what pleases the Father, and I want to say it too. I want to look at my wife and love her unconditionally in a way that my pride never wrecks it and my selfishness never competes. And I want to love my grown children and my grandchildren in a fashion that's always for their good without question or need for wisdom. I want to love my brothers and sisters in the church in unbroken fellowship where we never step on each other's toes and the tears of hurt 
have disappeared. Man, it's so good. And it's the foundation of the gospel. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And that takes me to the third thing I wanted to show you this morning is that Christ is exalted in life. Not only in deliverance and death, but in life itself. You know, I've been a leader in the church for over 30 years, and the very hardest concept for us to learn is that the abundant life of the gospel is about living for others. I have preached about this for over 25 years. It's a core truth of the scriptures. The two great love commands are to love God with a full heart and to love your neighbor as yourself. And you can't love God without loving your neighbor and you can't love your neighbor without loving God. It's a package deal. And I have taught this and taught this and I have preached it first to myself and prayed it lest I miss it and be disqualified. I am amazed at how hard my flesh fights against this in self-promotion and blame shifting. And I'm continually surprised by how slow we are as a people to get this. It's always about me. Are my needs being met? That's what every American asks when they visit a church. Will this church meet my needs? Well, if you need to be in fellowship with a bunch of other broken losers that are trying to find Jesus, then yeah, this church will be a perfect fit for you. I don't know about you, but I hate this about myself. Hate it. So, beloved, let me make it plain. It's not possible to walk deeply with Christ unless your life reflects this value in the kingdom, that we are here for each other, that together we might exalt Christ in this life. Jesus says there's no greater love than to lay down your life for a friend in every way. And because death is gain, listen now, because death is gain, I am free. I am free to boldly live for others for the glory of Christ. It's the only reason I would ever get on an airplane and fly 30 hours somewhere is because I am free in Christ Jesus. And isn't that what Paul says right here in verse 24? He says to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. So that in me, you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. You know, when Paul thought about what was best for him alone... He knew that it was to be beyond the grave with Jesus. No question about that. But when he contemplated what was best for the kingdom and the advancement of the gospel and his brothers and sisters in the Lord, the answer was easy. He would stay for the sake of the church and their progress. You see, everyone who places their faith in Jesus has been set free from themselves and given grace apportioned by Christ. And that grace is a gift to the body. That's what Paul says in three large passages about spiritual gifts from God to his people. In Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12 and Ephesians 4, the gift is not given to us. It's a gift to the church. And Paul tells us that God has given us, first of all, leaders. That's a gift of his grace. 
and, and that the purpose of those leaders is to equip us for ministry, for works of service. That's a gift of His grace. And the goal of that ministry in one another is edification, encouragement, unity in the faith, unity in the knowledge of Jesus, maturity in the fullness of Christ. What a list. Those are amazing benefits of the gospel. And we won't have those things unless we're poured out for each other. That's what Paul says. So the main job of leaders is to set an example of love and to help you love one another. It's not to be clever. Clever people die and go to hell. Only believers go to heaven. The kingdom doesn't work any other way. There's no such thing as hermit Christianity. Jesus says those who desire to keep their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for the sake of the gospel will find it. Each one of us is uniquely gifted to serve others and exalt Christ. For some it's teaching, for some it's administration, for some it's giving generously, for others it's cheerful mercy, for some it's cleaning bedpans and comforting the dying. And for some, it's encouragement and faith and even prayer. And watching little kids during the service. Beloved, we're made in the image of God designed for community. That's what we've been made for, to be with other people. And this is so woven into us that even unbelieving psychologists will tell a discouraged or a depressed person that one way to get well is to find someone worse off than you and pour your life into them. Now that makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? But it's wrong. That isn't how you get better. The key to encouragement is not to look down. It's to look up. Beloved, it may help you to help someone else, but the real healing comes by measuring your purpose by the exaltation of Christ. We don't do ministry to others simply because it's good for us. We serve because it's good for them. It brings glory to Christ because we become a reflection of his grace and his humility. And then in return, it brings joy to your account. It's a pretty good deal. And that's why, we, that's why struggle in Christ is fruitful and, and even necessary. Loving is, others is always a struggle, amen? Because I'm hard-hearted. And quite frankly, you're hard to love. But the gospel sets us free to love. It's so good. But there is bad news. The bad news is, is that I know that when you're hurting, you want to withdraw, that you feel useless, and you wonder if there will ever be any joy again. That's a hard place. But you see, apart from the body, and you're here, so I know I'm preaching to the choir, but apart from the body, it doesn't get better. It always gets worse. Discouragement grows, and Cynicism breeds and pride reigns as we imagine ourselves to, as the victims of hurt and simply forget that we're also the perpetrators of hurt as if we're the righteous ones. That's bad. 
Because you see, it feeds a taproot of bitterness and thanklessness and keeps us from a life of fruitfulness for others in God's church. It's enormously difficult. In fact, it is nearly impossible to love Jesus and hate his church, his bride. You can't be my friend if you hate my wife. It's hard to be Jesus' friend if you hate his wife. For some, that hurt will keep you from Christ. And that's bad. But there is good news, beloved. It's astonishingly good news. Jesus says, behold, I make all things new. Jesus died on the cross for our sins, even the fear, the sin of fear and discouragement in struggle. And, and also for the sin of discouragement and bitterness. He died for that too. And he rose from the dead to give us a new life and real purpose in bringing glory to Christ in life and in death. Paul says in Philippians 2, 17, he says, Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. That's how the church works right there. We're poured out for each other like a drink offering. You see, as we seek Christ, beloved, as we trust in his power to work in us and through us for his glory, then Christ fills our cups, and then those cups overflow into other people's lives. And the result is a body of believers that is held together by the love of Jesus Christ. So I invite you this morning to trust in the Lord Jesus and to renew your faith and your hope in him, in life, and in death. Ask him to take away your fear. Ask him to take away your discouragement in life and death. He will do it. Now ask him to give you real fruitfulness in the current struggle of your life. He'll, he'll do it more. Ask him to take away your hurt and your bitterness, your cynicism and your pride. He'll do it. He promises that if you ask more of himself, here's the most guaranteed prayer in, in, in in the Bible, in the kingdom. He will give the Holy Spirit to those who ask. You want more? Ask for more Jesus. He'll always give it. And your life will get filled for that which matters rather than that which hurts. Paul knew the gospel would never let him down. He eagerly expected to, to, and lived in hope that, that Christ would be exalted in his deliverance from fear so that Christ would be further exalted in this life and, and in his death. And you see, beloved, Christ will exalt himself in your deliverance from fear as well. I, I know you're afraid, but he will never let you down. For, for clearly being with him is far better for each of us in, individually. But oh, beloved. As a church, as a church, Christ is revealed in his exalted glory through us and in us together. And that, my friends, is the glorious grace of the gospel. Let's stand for prayer. Our Father, we thank you once again for your word that it's a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. We thank you for the real hope that we see from a man who's in chains for the sake of the gospel and being hurt from every side by false believers and false teachers and others 
his enemies who would do him damage inside the church, more so than even outside. And he's concerned about the exaltation of Christ and that he won't be ashamed and, and let Christ down in his facing of those struggles. And so that's our prayer this morning, Lord. We don't want to be ashamed. We don't want to be discouraged. We don't want to be bitter. What we want is the fresh hope of the gospel. So would you grant it to us this morning? Can we draw from the example of Paul who looked and hoped to you and the prayers of the saints and the fullness of the power of the Spirit? Would you once again fill us with your Spirit that we would be the people of reconciliation and love? And that it would be demonstrated. My hope and regular prayer for this body, Lord, is that they would be a beacon of love in this community. We Presbyterians think we're a beacon of correct doctrine, but no doctrine is true without love, Lord. So would this church be the hope of love and peace and God's shalom in Dallas, Georgia? And as you do that, Lord, we'll... Our hope will increase, our faith will grow, and your exaltation and the fame of your name will grow as well. Would you do it for us and in us, we pray, and we'll give you all the glory in Jesus' name. And all God's people said,